Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Uh, prayers for Al Cresta. His mother died uh, late last week. Alice, please pray for the repose of her soul and also for the consolation of Al and his family. Tom Nash here filling in for Al again, uh, second time this week. A real blessing to be with you all. We're going to be speaking to Matthew Bunsen off the top about various things going on in the Catholic world. Uh, one of them uh, involves a nun who died just earlier this week from Albania, and uh, she died at 92, and she lived under a communist regime led by Enver Hoxha. I remember my days at E.W. Chen and learning about him because of Aid to the Church in Need, which does a lot of uh, work with the suffering church around the world and uh, how much he spent on the military and really oppressed the church, et cetera, et cetera, and it wasn't very good. Um, but Matthew's here to talk about us. Matthew is the executive editor in the Washington Bureau Chief for EW Chen News, senior fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, and the author or editor of 50, 50 plus books. Matthew, welcome again to the program. Oh, always good to be with you. Thank you very much, Matthew. Tell us about this uh, nun uh, who died earlier this week, Sister. Uh, I'm looking at, I would think of Maria, but I think it may be pronounced slightly differently uh, in Albania. Yeah, Maria uh, Caleta, uh, who, uh, as you say, died at the age of 92, is one of those remarkable stories that uh, came to light really after uh, the fall of the communists and especially in a meeting that she had with Pope Francis in Albania. Mm. Uh, she was a stigmatine sister uh, who basically was able at long last to speak very publicly about uh, her story of persecution and, and her story We'll come back to in a second, but her story was emblematic, I think, of the immensity, the enormity of the suffering of believers in Albania. Let's remember that in 1967, Albania declared itself uh, the the world's first officially atheist state, Mm. and it was already one of the most vile communist regimes. I mean, all communist regimes are vile, but this one was especially brutal uh, in Albania. And uh, you could be arrested uh, for even the slightest uh, signs of religiosity, including making the sign of the cross, wearing a crucifix around your neck, or any evidence of a belief in a god. And that cut across all of the religions of Albania, churches, mosques, and other places of worship. And those were transformed into places like shopping centers and theaters and, and sports halls. And then, of course, you have uh, the the massacre, the martyrdom of so Mm. many uh, people of faith. That's important context, because as a sister, as a woman religious, but above all, as a Catholic, she baptized babies in secret in the midst of all of that uh, for many, many years. And it's one of those heroic stories that I'm glad that we can talk about and that we can remember her legacy. And she also brought Holy Communion, yes, to the sick and dying under that dictatorship of Enver Hoxha, uh, and um, that the priest would allow her, I think, to, to so she could do it discreetly, allowed her to reserve the Blessed Sacrament at her house and so that she could discreetly take it to people in her ministry. And that itself, you know, talking about bringing the eternal life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Eucharist to those most in need, particularly the dying, uh, that itself, you know, right there is, is is another witness in terms of risking your life, uh, but for to impart a greater life. Well, that's right. Yeah, and in her particular case, uh, she was uh, called to the religious life uh, as a child, 
mm. and was eventually able to um, uh, enter the Stigmatine Sisters. Entered the continent in the 1940s, uh, so let's remember what was happening in the 40s, and that's World War II. And then yes. in 1945, uh, you had the takeover of Albania by the communist regime after the collapse of uh, the the regime there, the, the government in Albania, and then uh, the establishment of the sort of Soviet empire. Yeah, and the Eastern Bloc. What that meant was that she was never able as a result, uh, to make her final vows. That took uh, all the way to 1991 for her to make her final vows. So you're talking about, about half a century uh, in which uh, that vocation to the religious life was delayed. But she spent it so beautifully of bringing the Blessed Sacrament uh, to the sick and the dying, of baptizing people, of keeping the faith alive in a country, I think we had a close example of what that would be like today, it would be North Korea, mm. uh, keeping the faith alive under such dangerous and dire circumstances. Yes, and you know, I would think too, having seen what went on in those regimes, that they would not let them wear the religious garb, they made them work in factories, they would basically, it's like, we're not going to martyr you, we're going to make it so that you are, we're going to, shall we say, see how Catholic you might be by... Um, taking you away from your religious life, your priestly life, and see, for those who aren't tortured, but if, you know, put it, you into a secular world and see if you're going to persevere in that regard, maybe it'll just quit and and, and uh, realize that uh, going along with the communist way is better. But she perseveres amidst that, all that, and not only does it, but she's sharing the sacraments. Now, some people might think, well, wait a second, don't we always want to make sure that a baptized child is going to have someone who is, if not the parents and a grandparent or someone like that. But I would think that she was mindful of that. And maybe people who maybe were afraid to do it, that that she gave them a strength and a hope when she did do it. Yeah, uh, that's true. And one of the, the stories that the, I would encourage everyone to go to the Catholic News Agency for a beautiful piece on uh, Sister Caleta, um, that uh, she told the story uh, of uh, the fact that she baptized children, not only in the villages, but also anyone who basically showed up at her door. But uh, she was also very careful in how she did it. And she especially focused on a story about a, a woman with a baby who came up to her just in the street yes. and asked me, to, she said, to baptize her. And the sister was a little concerned because she knew that this uh, woman might have been a communist or was a communist. And, and, of course, that's one of the ways you could be trapped and arrested. And she said that uh, she didn't have anything to baptize her with because we were on the road. But the woman uh, was so eager for this that she said, well, there's a canal with water nearby. So they went to the canal. But then the sister said, well, you know, I don't have anything to collect the water with. But she insisted that she baptize the child and she put it, seeing her faith, she took off her shoe, which was made of plastic, filled it with water from the canal, and baptized her. I mean, that's, um, she did it despite knowing that this could very well be a trap, but seeing the faith in someone, and I suspect spending those many years in that type of an environment of such severe persecution, uh, and, and keeping the faith under those circumstances, I dare say I think that she was able to recognize the sincerity of faith when she saw it and was probably on many occasions able to detect when someone was false in their claims. Uh, that 
just from the, the sheer importance of her spiritual life that would have to sustain you during this. Yeah, and, and then the courage to step out when you weren't sure. And, and the fact that she was approached by this woman who was authentic says something about her reputation that must have spread around that this lady who, though she was a communist, that she was touched by the courageous witness of Sister Coleta, that she would um, seek her out in the manner in which she did. I mean, that, that itself speaks volumes. Well, that's right. And it's Pope Francis often uses the, the phrase of the unknown saints. And for many, many years, uh, this remarkable nun was essentially unknown. Mm. There were people in Albania, I'm sure, who honored her, who treasured her. But it was the visit of Pope Francis uh, to Albania uh, that gave them the chance uh, in 2014 for her story to be heard around the world. And in that sense, too, we have an opportunity then to really celebrate uh, and not to forget the martyrdoms, the suffering of believers Mm. uh, in the communist regimes. But we can also extend that now to our sisters and brothers all over the world who are suffering under uh, severe persecution in the Islamist regimes, uh, in what's left of the communist regimes, and even we're seeing more and more the types of uh, what Pope Francis, uh, his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, so memorably and chillingly referred to as a dictatorship of relativism. Mm, yes, indeed. And uh, speaking of relativism, some of our Western countries seem to have embraced that, and that's why we've had a decline in them. Uh, Sister Kaleda would be a good uh, witness for some of the unchurched people or people stop going to church, such as, for example, Austria, our next story. But interestingly, that they reported a decline in membership, but a rise in income. And I would think that that couldn't last for too many years or too many decades. Uh, no, that's right. And uh, we can see the way that the fruits of all of this um, are, are being born. Uh, the resurgence of faith in certain parts of Eastern Europe is a testament to the suffering that took place there. But let's also remember the, the great threats that exist as well. Mm. In the West, we have demographic winter. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about the church in Austria. Uh, but then we also have in the Eastern countries uh, of Eastern Europe, uh, we have, in many cases, strong faith. But as John Paul II warned them when he visited in 1990, when he went to Poland, what everyone was assuming would be like this magnificent victory lap, yeah. uh, having dis- defeated the, the Soviet regime there. What did he warn? He said, well, there's going to be a vacuum created by this death of an atheist regime. And be aware that what will follow, what could fill that vacuum is secularism and a new form of atheism. And of course, that's something that Eastern Europe is grappling with uh, every day. Yeah, uh, we just got a minute left in this segment, but it reminds me of the movie Beckett, where Beckett uh, says to uh, the king, King Henry II, about that not to oppress, but that a a good occupying regime uh, corrupts, and he goes, it saps virility. And you can see how that in the West, where they get seduced by secularism and the various things that can go with it, and uh, they end up going away from the faith voluntarily via seduction, sadly. Mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, the allure of uh, secularism, the allure of, of everything that we see, certainly in the West, that ends 
uh, with uh, the declining of the family, of uh, a loss of faith, uh, economic and social instability, all of the things that John Paul II warned about, and we can all look, go all the way back to the popes of the 20th century and their warnings about that, but in particular, uh, Pope St. Paul VI with Humani Vitae, mm. uh, that just that one aspect tells you the threats that we're under today. Yeah, as uh, the Pope said so well, John Paul II, uh, civilization goes by way of the family. We will be back to talk about some more stories, including the case of Father Gary Bethune in the Archdiocese of Detroit, who is held back a, or taken back a guilty plea because judge says you got to do more time. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. We broadcast out of Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is just adjacent to the Archdiocese of Detroit. Used to be in the Archdiocese of Detroit, where I grew up in the city. Went to St. Mary Redford in Detroit back in the day. Uh, And this next story involves a priest who served in the Archdiocese of Detroit, Father Gary Bethune, and how he is withdrawing a couple of guilty pleas after being sentenced to spend up to 15 years in prison on charges uh, for sexually abusing at least three boys back in the day, and particularly in uh, Our Lady of Sorrows in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Uh, it's an interesting case, Matthew, because he was going to serve one year and one day, and then the judge looked at it and said, I don't think that's uh, sufficient, and I can understand why the judge would say that. And so uh, we'll, I guess we're going to have to see what happens next, huh? Well, that's right. Uh, let's uh, also note that... Uh, uh, the priest is, or former priest is, uh, 80 years old. Yes. And that may have uh, figured in his decision then to withdraw, withdraw his guilty plea. Yeah. Um, in this case, the, the circuit judge uh, made that decision on the basis of uh, the evidence and on the basis of the testimony and uh, that he felt uh, this was an insufficient initial sentence, that one year and a day is just not enough as far as he's concerned in terms of the plea deal that the, the Michigan Attorney General's office reached. So as is his right, uh, the former priest uh, entered uh, what's called a Killebrew plea, which is a conditional plea that uh, you make in exchange for a lighter sentence. But, and that's, this is where the technicality becomes important, mm. you can withdraw that if at the end of the day the, the judge in the court decides upon a sentence that is much more severe or harsher than the one that was actually agreed to in the, in the plea. So that's precisely what happened here. So he, the, the former priest is now withdrawing uh, his plea, and we'll see what happens. Yes, uh, Father Berthume said he was abused as a seminarian by a priest so that the, the victim became the victimizer, as he puts it. Uh, one of the people who testified, one of his victims, said that he was a demon who disguised himself as a man of God. Um, of course, as I mentioned at the outset of the program, you know, God's mercy is there for all, and yet there's there's something about doing um, proper penance. I know a person who used to play tennis with Father Berthume, who went on in college and high school, high school and college, and, and was a rather um, successful tennis player. And I remember him telling me a year or so ago about how his dad came up to him and said, did he ever touch you? And he was thinking, mm-hmm. for, you know, what's going on? And he, no, no, that never happened. And so thankfully, I, I think, you know, oftentimes it's sad, but they, 
will prey upon people who are in more vulnerable situations, you know, that they'll see somebody who's a single parent or some, some kind of a situation where maybe the kid's more vulnerable, more needy. An exception to that would be the Bachoric case uh, in the Archdiocese of Detroit, which involved Tom Bachoric, who played Major League Baseball, and one of his brothers. And so they, there was another guy, Father Sharilla, who was um, a good friend of the family and unfortunately uh, ended up abusing a number of the kids. But uh, Well, that's it, right. Yeah, this particular case follows uh, many of the, the patterns, uh, the horrifying patterns uh, mm. that we've certainly now spent uh, more than two decades uh, trying to document and uh, that we're all familiar with. And that's uh, the idea of grooming of uh, a priest who uh, is able to prey upon families that are especially vulnerable, uh, who might be uh, financially troubled uh, or where there's a no father figure. I mean, the the pattern is very clear here and uh, comforting, we should say, that uh, the number of cases uh, that we're dealing with now on an annual basis is is vastly reduced. One case is always too many. But yeah. um, we're seeing in this case as well that justice eventually did catch up with him. Uh, he had already been uh, dismissed from the clerical state and now uh, will be spending some kind of a prison sentence, presumably, uh, as a result of uh, his misconduct. But this has played out now for decades, as uh, you and I have just been saying. And the other thought, it makes me think of this and get your thought on on my view. I mean, he had already served six months going back to a case um, in, I think, the late 70s. Yeah, he was convicted. And then, you know, he goes, he, he still gets to serve. He goes to Cleveland, then to Joliet, then back to Cleveland. And I'm thinking... A lay person like you or me, we'd be one and done. We'd be out. And I, I sometimes, you know, we talk about clericalism, and Pope Francis is talking about clericalism as being a contributor to the abuse crisis. And I'd have to say one thing for sure: it's kind of clericalism, and I would argue, combined with the the love of money, where because the priest is a person who, because he celebrates the sacrament, and particularly Mass on Sunday, which is responsible for the collection that keeps the parish going that there is, well, somehow it's going to be okay or we can get by. And because he is, a, they look at that instead of the ministerial aspect and the eternal aspect. And a number of archbishops, uh, well, in this case and then in other cases, fail because of a, of a sense of clericalism where a layperson would not get away with that. And I, I think that part of it is that the money issue. Yes. Uh, and uh, as we look at the process of reform that's been under place now, and underway for uh, years, so we can go all the way back to John Paul II, but in particular in the pontificate of Pope Benedict XVI, and now uh, very vigorously under Pope Francis. So we can see how those types of failings uh, are being dealt with, at least canonically from the Church's standpoint, with uh, the type of decree such as Locestius Lux Mundi that really does hold bishops accountable in a way that uh, they previously hadn't. Now we've got the metropolitan model and in those cases where a bishop has uh, failed in his duties, been basically derelict, where he has potentially participated in a cover-up, which could have legal consequences, but especially failure uh, in dealing with abuse cases uh, forthrightly and effectively, uh, bishops are now being held accountable. And we have seen in the last couple of years uh, several cases where that was very publicly discussed uh, and cases were investigated. So that idea of clericalism, which has been one of those uh, major flashpoints as far as Pope Francis is concerned, uh, is something that uh, canonically within church law we're trying to deal with as well. 
So what we pray for Father Berthium uh, in all sincerity and for his victims and that these things not happen again because sadly they tried to, in some sense, maybe I think keep the money coming in and yet, uh, of course, all these settlements have seen the money go out and it's been a, and it's been a real scandal, but with God's grace we can persevere and, and, and heal God have mercy on us. A different topic, um, the whole... People have been talking about, Matthew, get your thoughts on this, the so-called woke tone in the viral synod tweet. That is from the USCCB of different words that are being out there. And some people saying, hey, why aren't we having in holiness and redemption and God's love and all that? And they came up with words like innovative outlook, inclusivity, open-mindedness, listening, accompaniment, co-responsibility and dialogue. And those have their place, but are they the starting point? Well, exactly. I think this is... Uh been uh, one of those stories that has gone really, really viral in a way that no one wants to have happen. Mm. Uh, To be going viral for reasons of, well, to put it plainly, a a lot of mockery Mm. uh, for some of the language that was used. Um, As uh, uh, the Catholic News Agency's uh, Shannon Mullen, I would encourage everyone to read his uh, very interesting story called Synod Snafu, the USCCB tweet Catholic Twitter can't stop talking about. And that's Mm. absolutely true, uh, that there's a sense of uh, the embraces, as put of corporate buzzwords. And uh, in that sense, I think when that happens and you are an institution for evangelization and people are using phrases like corporate buzzwords, uh, that's never in a good place uh, to be. And what is really interesting is that, uh, as you noted, you have phrases like inclusivity, open-mindedness, dialogue, co-responsibility. The sarcasm that that opened them to uh, was very unfortunate uh, for any institution, Catholic institution, to have that happen. But it was also an interesting opportunity for uh, Catholics to weigh in on any of the things that they would consider to be important, and you just listed some of them, that the the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all of that, uh, that the things that really could make a major difference in the lives of Catholics. And further, I think, complicate some of the challenges that they've had institutionally for us as a church in trying to help people understand what exactly we mean by synodality and why exactly we're going to have a synod, an entire synod, dedicated to synodality. And Pope Francis talks a lot about this, but this has become a a real challenge for um, bishops across the United States and even for the synod of bishops to try to help people understand what exactly they're talking about. Yeah, and I, I see that a USCCB spokesman came out and said, hey, this is all supposed to a uh, process that fo- fosters the active participation of all uh, so that it will result in fruitful conversation that at times may be frank and challenging. Uh, we want to share best practices, etc. And that's all good to getting, you know, having people be able to share their thoughts and, and, and their hurts or whatnot. But What's won people over for 2,000 years is preaching the gospel and letting them know God loves you wherever you're at, and yet he loves you enough even more that he doesn't want to keep you where you're at. And that's the whole thing of the transformation of the gospel that seems to be missing, that if we're not leading with Christ. We're not leading with the the kerygma, the gospel message that he came and died for us and redeemed us. But we seem to be trying to imitate the world and not doing too well at it, given the reaction. Right. Well, and, and Pope Francis said uh, just today, uh, once again, 
trying to express synodality. As he described it, it's not a search for a majority consensus, but a style guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, that mm. yeah. um, there was a, in a, an address he gave to a delegation of French Catholic action groups. Um, but what it, it, it sometimes is very difficult for the average Catholic and for even theologians to understand precisely what is meant by a synodal process. Mm. And in that sense, too, I think uh, uh, Francis is are trying to articulate his vision for this. And that's why he says that it's not a search for majority consensus. It's not done by parliament. Uh, it's not a plan, a program to be implemented. He, he describes it as a style to be adopted in which the main protagonist is the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's a tough ask for a, a at a time in culture when everything has to have metrics and everything has to be quantifiable. Yeah, and now uh, speaking of that and the Holy Spirit, I see that the upcoming 2025 uh, Jubilee year is going to have, the motto is basically Pilgrims of Hope, and uh, Mm -hmm. that should get us focused back on Christ and the Holy Spirit, and then we'll be leading uh, with our best game. That's right, Uh, and uh, this is something that Pope Francis feels very strongly about. Uh, and we go all the way back to the year 1300 when Pope Boniface VIII first convoked uh, a holy year. So let's try to lean into this, even though it's several years away. Matthew, thanks as always for being with us. How can people stay in touch with you? Yeah, you can always find me at EWTNnews.com. Thank you very much, Matthew. Wish you all the best and everyone at EWTN. We will be back and talk about the big pro-life stories of the year. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. 